Welcome to the 458th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome historian John Shetechka to discuss Ukrainian history and the war going on in the Ukraine today. You can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on COVID Calls, the COVID Calls YouTube channel. And you can also catch COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Okay, I'd like to jump right into the conversation today. Let me introduce my guest, John Shetechka. He's a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Michigan State University. He's writing a dissertation on the 1932-1933 famine, the Holodomor, and the 1946-1947 famine in Soviet Ukraine. He's also the founder and one of the current editors of H Ukraine, part of the larger HNet online platform dedicated to promoting and sharing academic and scholarly content related to the study of Ukraine. During this year, this academic year, he's on a Fulbright scholarship, was on a Fulbright, I guess he's still on a Fulbright scholarship to Kyiv, Ukraine, but was evacuated out of the country in late January due to the threat of war. He's currently in Warsaw, finishing his grant and working with refugees who are crossing into Poland from Ukraine. John Szczytecka, thanks for taking the time to join me on COVID calls. Thanks for having me, Scott. Let me start the way I usually do. And you're in Warsaw. Could you tell me a, a little bit about the situation there? I'm interested in the COVID situation, also the refugee settlement situation, as best you know it. Yeah. So actually, the things are sort of uh, intertwined at the moment. The uh, situation with COVID is, as of yesterday, when I checked, I think the the vaccination rate for fully vaccinated here in Poland was around in the high 50s, maybe 58 percent, um, which is actually, you know, much better than what it is in Ukraine at the moment. And the situation when we got here in late January, they were going through a, sort of a peak, a wave again here in Poland. And we were told to be, you know, pretty cautious. And we were still masking, of course, and uh, we were all, you know, we're all vaccinated and boosted um, as we were required to do this before we even left the United States to come to Ukraine. But we got to Poland and the situation seemed pretty serious. You know, masking was enforced sort of everywhere. When I first got here, that has sort of been relaxed. And, um, the, you know, the, uh, the situation, I think, is evolving now with a number of individuals coming in to Poland from Ukraine. And I know, for example, that the Polish government is offering to, to vaccinate people who come into the country who are not vaccinated. Um, and this is, of course, to help curb any sort of spread or new wave that may occur with the the war, which, you know, has become indirectly linked to the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which is ongoing. So um, the situation here, yeah, it's, 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 it's still going. The Polish government has relaxed a lot of the measures here, minus masking and some quarantine rules. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's still going on just like it is in every other part of the world. Uh, you've been a, a great person to follow on social media through this. I just wanted to thank you for that and to 
giving you know voice and some way to connect with what's going on there, connected with history too, and this long arc of history which you have studied. And I want to ask you about that, and maybe we'll circle back to the situation in in Kiev. Um, you're working on a dissertation about famine, multiple or two waves of famine at least in Ukraine before and after World War II. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Yeah, absolutely. So my, my dissertation is uh, the larger project is really focused on the aftermath of the 1932-33 Holodomor, which, of course, if you know anything about Soviet Ukrainian history, you've probably heard about this famine. Uh, it's, it's one of the kind of preeminent national tragedies of Ukraine, unfortunately. But it is actually the middle famine of three major famines to hit the country in the 20th century. So there's sort of this first what you I guess you could call it a, a you know the first large famine in in the Soviet Union um, that really happens between like 1921 and 1923, and then there's of course the 1932-33 famine, and there's an all an all Soviet famine right that affects different parts of the Soviet Union, uh, but there of course is a more specific direct famine that happens in Soviet Ukraine, um, which just ravages the country. And then we have the post-war famine in 1946-47, which again, after the war, many countries are hungry, food issues and food shortages are abound. But there is a famine again in Soviet Ukraine uh, in the post-war years. And so my project, uh, it's kind of birthed out of the historiography, as we call it, right? Um, Finding kind of these holes in, in what hasn't been written yet. And so I have been really influenced not only by my own committee, but by other scholars of what I call the aftermath. And I, I became sort of intrigued about the scholarship on the famine that we talk about 1932, 1933, and then the narrative sort of just ends about the famine. Uh, it's like things just go away in 1933. And you know, yourself as a scholar of what you call slow disasters, it is this in many ways. Um, the famine comes to what I call a slow conclusion. Uh, and this is sort of the same term that others have used in their books as well. But uh, in 1933, you know, major hunger subsides. But I was really interested in kind of the effects in the immediate aftermath, the problems left in the wake of hunger, right? Uh, the things that just don't go away because the year ends. And so what I do is my project really takes the scope from about 1933 to 1947. And I do this not only to, to look at sort of these effects that people deal with, right? And I'm talking literal, literal aftermath, such as confronting the dead. You have millions that die within a two-year span. And so, uh, you know, there's a natural question of what happens to all these bodies, right? Um, how do people confront this disaster? Uh, then there are the questions of how people cope with trauma. How they, how they grieve and mourn for their lost loved ones, uh, how they start to write about their experiences, what happened, how they feel about it, coming to terms. Um, and then there are other practical questions as well, of the, the question of international aid, um, which is something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And it's mostly because uh, the Soviet Union didn't really allow international aid in. And this, of course, is true. But there are other measures that are taken by individual groups, religious actors, and Ukrainian immigrant groups abroad that fundraise and advocate for aid and deliver actually a significant amount of aid, but this doesn't start until the worst of the famine is over. So this is part of that aftermath narrative too of how do we provide food and help to those in need who are still in need, right? Just because mass famine ends doesn't mean that issues of hunger go away deeply. Um, so I write about that as well. And then I write about too, uh, sort of the process of the famine during the Great Terror, which becomes significant again because 
um, as the state is sort of persecuting those for anti-Soviet agitation and anti-Soviet propaganda and resistance. Um, well, it turns out that Ukrainians had been journaling about the famine. They've been talking to their friends about the famine. They've been writing poetry. And so not only is this interesting because, you know, the famine, again, people are persecuted for talking about it and understanding it in the late 1930s. But we also get some idea of what people were writing about and how they were making sense of the famine in the years immediately following. And so it gives us kind of uh, some insight into, you know, their mentality, let's call it. And then, of course, I, I pushed this narrative into the 1940s. And although this is a different this is a different setting, this is after a major world war, different occupations by the Soviets and Germans and Soviets again. There are um, there are memories of 1932-33 for those who survived 19. So, so for those who survived 1932-33, there are memories that come up in 1946-47. Um, and I couldn't help but notice that they're using this 1930s famine to contextualize and understand their experience again under a new famine in 1946-47. So it's a way to sort of incorporate it into the aftermath, but also help us remind, also remind us, I suppose, that people endured not just one famine in the 20th century, but sometimes multiple. And um, it's a way to kind of link these processes in the historical timeline and, and, and indicate how people um, not only not only survive one famine, but then use that experience to to contextualize and help them kind of come to terms with what's happening to them again in the late 1940s. John, it's it's enough to write about one famine, yeah. uh, but I really you're doing the disaster studies community a real favor here by stretching it across these multiple disasters, and I really appreciate appreciate the way you you talk about the kind of sources that you must be using. The sources that maybe sometimes don't get um, captured uh, by state documents. And I know you can tell me if they're more personal, if they're journaling, or if they're the records of people providing aid who are not formally designated by the state. What kind of things are you relying on to to capture these stories? Yeah, that's a great question. And one, you know, I think every historian's interested in when we talk to each other. I know. I, Sorry, uh, I had to ask the historian wonky question. That's the first thing that I think of. <laughs> Oh, no, it's it's right up my alley. So, uh, you know, like like most good projects, I think I try and incorporate a diverse range of sources. Um, anyone who works in Soviet former Soviet archives knows that um, there are limits to these things. Right. And it's sort of this you have to be mindful of kind of the fetish fetishization of archival work in this way, because you're going to be limited in what you find. Um, so not only do I incorporate archival evidence such as uh, death certificates, death records, records from morgues, actually, that talk about um, how they're classifying death during the famine, these types of things. Um, I use these. I use private journals from the, the SBU archive in Kiev, which houses all the criminal files um, that are accessible. And it's quite an open archive to work in, unlike in Russia. So I make sense of a number of, you know, 30 or 40 criminal files that contain everything from journals to photographs to poetry, which has become a, a source that I did not intend to work with. But I am because uh, there's a lot of poetry written about the famine and its aftermath. In addition to that, I'm using documents um, from actually quite, you know, across the world, especially for the, the chapter on international relief. These documents, aid documents from organizations in places like Romania, Czech Republic, uh, you know, from Prague, London, Bucharest, uh, Geneva, um, Vienna, Norway. There are newspapers and documents that come from these organizations. 
um, in addition to survivor testimony, of which, you know, we have a, quite a bit of survivor testimony. And some of this, of course, comes from the 1980s when people really start to talk about this. Mm-hmm. But I also integrate survivor testimony um, that that was formed a little bit earlier. So it's it's kind of a hodgepodge of sources, I would say. But uh, yeah, I mean, anything from I, I do a lot of archival work, like most historians, but not only. And I do actually do oral history interviews with sur- the sort of the children of survivors, right. um, mostly because a lot of the survivors are no longer with us. And it's becoming increasingly hard to find those who are still around from the 1932-33 famine. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the range of sources that I'm using at the moment. You anticipated my next question was whether or not there were survivors alive today and assuming there are children alive today. And have you had conversations with them? Yeah, I, I have a pretty big network of, you know, it's it's not so big, those of us who work their entire careers in the history of famine in one country. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've met wonderful people, survivors. Um, I, you know, I, I've talked to several survivors throughout my, my sort of early career, but these are getting harder and harder to find. Um, this is not necessarily the case for those who survived 1946-47. I've been in touch with a lot more people who have lived through that. But with 1932-33, absolutely. Uh, I've talked to relatives and children of survivors and, you know, the the power of narratives that get transferred down between generations is really significant in, you know, kind of the Ukrainian world. Uh, and it's really a, a useful source. I mean, not one that we have to use uncritically, but still one that we can use uh, to better understand kind of the people's perspective. And I'm a historian. I'm a social historian. I care about what happens to the people. Right. Um, the labels are important, how we deem these events, but really what happens to the people under these labels, I think, is far more important. Um, and it's their stories that I want to tell and incorporate into my dissertation. Talking to John Shetechka today about his history, uh, his dissertation work that he's been doing in Ukraine uh, about famine in the 1930s and 1940s. Let me pivot a little bit to the time that you did get to spend there in the run up to the war that's ongoing now. Um, I just have to ask a basic you know, question about this. I mean, what kind of what was the atmosphere like leading up to the time that that you left? Right. Yeah, it's it's something I've, you know, been talking about a lot lately and reflecting on quite a bit now that I've had a little distance from leaving Eve. Um look, I got I got there I got to the Capitol in October, early October for my Fulbright grant, which was already delayed due to COVID by a year. And the you know, it, the atmosphere actually the whole time I was there was calm and relaxed. Uh I, I took a, a quick holiday to go back to the US to see my partner. Uh, over Christmas. And, you know, at that time, there were there were some talks, of course, about war or potential threats from Putin, um, what Russia might do in Ukraine. You know, we have to remember that this situation is eight years old. This didn't start 14, 15 days ago, whatever it is now. Uh, this has been ongoing. It's just been reignited. So I, I came back in early January and I was back to work. And the murmurs about what was going to happen were definitely there among my group. 
the Ukrainians that I talked to and worked with, you know, they were aware of this, but uh, I was, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone in Ukraine at that time that really believed anything was going to happen. And still many of my friends to this day say, we didn't expect this to happen until it happened, uh, if that tells you anything. So the, the atmosphere, in, in at least in Kyiv, uh, where I was, was really calm. I mean, we were going about our daily lives, right? I was still working in archives. I was going to my coffee shops every day, talking with people, hanging out, going to dinners. Um, one of one of my good friends, he just had a baby in Ukraine, and they're actually refugees that are living with me here in Warsaw now. They got out. But, uh, you know, we were trying to – people were building their lives as normal, starting families, settling down, and it felt totally normal. And we got evacuated, and there was a lot of criticism of whether that was too soon, uh, whether this was a bit too reactionary, and it turned out not to be the case. Um, somebody knew something much more than we did at the time. But, uh, I mean, even I was in Poland for two weeks, roughly, before any of this really reignited again. So the, uh, the atmosphere up until really the bombs hit was, was still pretty calm and, calm and collected. I mean, I just want to underline here, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in all of this, but that your dissertation, your trip there was delayed a year because of the worst pandemic the world has seen in 100 years uh, and, and disrupted now by war, it must be awfully hard to keep your mind on the past. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, as you said, I, I, <laughs> it's becoming really hard to separate um, time right now, uh, especially in what is wartime and what is COVID time. And yeah, as you mentioned, uh, you know, it's not just me. There was a whole set of scholars who were set to take off in 2020 uh, and be and be in our respective countries for the academic year between 2020 and 2021. Our grants continually got pushed due to the pandemic, rightfully so, I understand. And then, um, you know, we waited over a year to, to actually get into our countries for research. And, you know, I'll tell you honestly that we flew into a country that was going through a massive, you know, kind of COVID situation. It was still level four to go to Ukraine at the time. And, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about that of, uh, I'm not sure how wise it was to send people into, you know, a raging pandemic, but we went, we were vaccinated. Uh, you know, as far as I know, I've still never had COVID. Uh, I am fully vaccinated and boosted, so that definitely helps. But I got to give fall and almost immediately after we, we went into the red zone. Things shut down, businesses stopped. Um, there was kind of this running joke in Kyiv, though, that the only difference in red zone is that you have to get your McDonald's to go. So, you know, all the McDonald's, uh, they, it's, right. you could still eat there, but they would only package it to go. So, you right. know, it kind of defeated the whole purpose. Yeah. And so, you know, how seriously people were taking it is a whole other question. And the vaccination rate in Ukraine, I just looked, it's still hovering, I think, around 35%. So it plateaued rather quickly, uh, even after the vaccination drive. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a longer history there of why people are reticent to get vaccinated. But... Um, and, you know, something that actually you could tie back into kind of the history of famine, because after famine, one of these effects is the spread of disease. Lots of people die, not necessarily of acute starvation, but actually from malnourished bodies that then take on disease and die of disease. And so after this, there was a big campaign, actually, these sanitary commissions that tried to force people to get vaccinations against diseases. And as you can imagine, um, a, a regime that starves you to death, you're not necessarily lining up to get vaccines from them uh, or to take their help in the medical sphere. Right. Okay. So they're, they're, I'm not saying that this is directly linked to what's happening in the pandemic, but there's definitely some historical context that we can draw from that. 
Um, and you know, the situation, it was really bad. It, it, if you read the news at the time, they, the, the deaths were just off the charts. You could yeah. go to one of these famous cemeteries and this one Baikova cemetery has this really famous crematoria that's kind of designed in this brutalist construction. And I went over there actually to, to look at some graves of some famous people, but uh, I talked to one of the guys there and there's just smoke billowing. And he said that they're running the crematoria 24 seven because of COVID patients. Uh, so if that gives you any indication, right, that these people, these cemeteries, these crematoria, I got to kind of witness the the effects of COVID in real time just by accident of going to the cemetery. And um, you, you can really feel the impact of it there. Thank you for sharing those details. And yeah, I have noticed and been tracking even before the the war, surprised by the low vaccination rate, not really able to understand the context too well. I think there's there's going to be a lot more to be said about that, but do you think it's plausible that there's, and I guess the vaccine availability, are, the, are those Russian produced vaccines earlier in the pandemic or those vaccines that were bought in the open market from other places in Europe? Or, or do you know? I'm just trying to understand the hesitance. Yeah, I mean, initially, I think in, not in mainland Ukraine, but maybe in other part, the, I can't remember if it was in perhaps like the eastern part in Donbass, maybe Crimea, Sputnik was available. Um, which, as you can imagine, a vaccine named Sputnik coming from the Russians maybe is not the most inviting thing for a Ukrainian, right, to, to inject in themselves. And there are issues yeah. with these things. But there was wide availability pretty, you know, at least when I was there, of Pfizer, AstraZeneca. Okay. So they had choice for sure. Hmm. So that's really interesting then and that, to unpack that vaccine hesitancy. I, I, that's one area. Then the other is just the um, sort of the medical system in in general, I mean, really, you know, the way you were talking just a moment ago that that um, disease often follows famine um, and famine often follows war. I mean, we're sounding sort of apocalyptic here, I know. But, um, you know, this, this stress on the health system in Ukraine is is nothing new. But I don't know much about how the health system is organized. And, and are there vestiges of the Soviet system in that or was that system remade since the 1990s in a somewhat different way yeah well you know i'm not i, I don't know much about the healthcare system there either uh i do have a couple of fulbright colleagues who are working in the ministry of health and so oh. uh, i did hear you know bits and things about kind of the healthcare system and it's gone it's it's undergoing sort of a major reform and this really happened um, with the help of Ulana Saprun, who is actually an American that went to Ukraine to, to work in the Ministry of Health and kind of implemented new changes. And so it's come a long way for sure. Um, but the details and the, you know, the specifics of how this works, I'm not totally, I'm not totally sure about. But, you know, I, the only thing I can say is that I know there are some, you know, there were people that were avoiding vaccines by getting fake vaccine cards. And these were coming from doctors uh, that were charging a fee to hand out cards, right? And I mean, this was happening all over the world. This isn't a Ukrainian problem alone. Uh, this was happening in the United States as well. But, you know, I, I think with the hesitancy, too, there's just a, I don't know, there's a different feeling about it, at least when I was in Ukraine, of, eh, it's just a common cold. Uh, you know, we, how serious could this be? And I think this kind of helped, uh, you know, kind of propel some of these, I don't know how serious I need to take it, a little bit distrust of the government, right, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is somewhat natural in these things to question how big of a deal, you know, our governments make these these things, because, you know, most of us, this is the first pandemic I've ever lived through, uh, and we want to be, you know, be certain about the information that we're getting. 
But as far as how this transformed the healthcare, what they were doing, I mean, I know a lot of health workers work nonstop. Uh, they don't get paid a lot of money in Ukraine. So they're doing the same work that doctors and nurses are in the U.S. for really next to nothing in pay. But yeah, as far as, you know, the sort of uh, revamp of the healthcare system and what that means now, I, unfortunately, I just don't have that much information. Oh, well, um, no, I know it's not your core area of expertise, and I, I appreciate you, you know, given the information that you did. It's valuable. But so what's next? I mean, it's a premature question, I guess. You're going to continue your time there in, in Warsaw and work as best best you can. You have to reconfigure the project at, at this point. What are you planning to do? Well, <laughs> it's a great question. I'm still figuring that out because I, I plan to spend my time in Poland going through all the archival material that I had gathered. And I think that I will have enough to finish the dissertation, thankfully. Uh, I'm still making sure that I, I will. I might have to alter it a little bit, but it'll be enough to finish, um, I think. So now, though, all scholarly pursuits have been paused as I continue to work here with refugees. I think I mentioned this earlier, but I have people who cross the border living with me now. In fact, we're all living in kind of this one bedroom apartment and they are here and they have a, a you know, just she's barely over a month old, their daughter. So um, this is the reality. And I have another friend who lived across the street from me in Kiev. She's here. And we're working to give people rides. We're helping people find housing. Uh, I've been working to get people, you know, like a little bit of startup money when they get here, working with translation work, these types of things. Yesterday, we went to a military store and got a bunch of things like thermal underwear and gloves and balaclavas for the territorial defense units in Ukraine to help them stay warm and, you know, keep safe as in their fight, uh, their defensive fight, right, um, mm -hmm. against Russia and so this has been sort of the new project at the moment. Um, you know, I think this is more important and this is really where scholarly meets activists. And we claim, you know, I think it's important for those of us who claim to, to study these types of moments and, and be involved. Well, you have to put your scholarship aside for a moment and actually be in the moment and work with people and learn how these things unfold so you can then better write about them. Uh, and I'm learning this on the fly as we go here. So the other issue, though, is I can only be in Poland for 90 days. Uh, I'm on a tourist visa, right? I have temporary residency in Ukraine, but that doesn't matter right now. So uh, I won't be able to go back there for quite some time, I think. And I, my 90 days started when I got here in Poland. And I need to, you know, go home soon and see family. My, my wife is back in the U.S. She had planned right. to be in Ukraine with me for two and a half months on a sabbatical. And obviously that didn't pan out. And then she was supposed to come to Poland. And now I have people living with me and we just decided it was better for her to stay in the U.S. So I likely will head back to the U.S. soon as soon as I finish up a couple more projects here, um, which which for me means helping friends and colleagues get across the border and find a place to live until this all is over. Well, I, I know you have a lot to do and you have people there in the house, so I think we probably better wrap up our conversation. Um, I I just want to say thank you and, and for taking this time and for the work that you're doing. The scholarship is one thing, but I, I think what you just just have to underline, uh, heavily underline what you just said about the the tension. I think a lot of times history tends to be a pretty conservative profession uh, in, in the sense that people see themselves as scholars and activism is not always at the core of the discipline, sometimes treated as a sideline. You don't have that option right now. So I appreciate what you're doing. And I think you're a model. And, uh, you know, also, you didn't, you were there. 
I mean, you have the network. You're there serving a, a purpose. It's not like you took a flight in to snap pictures. You have a vital role to play in interpreting this for the rest of the world. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm just thankful you're there. Yeah, thanks, Scott. It means a lot. So let me just remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls, and I've been talking to John Shatechka, who is a, a scholar working on his dissertation in Ukrainian history, now in Poland. I hope we'll keep in touch, and people can follow you uh, at John Shatechka, and I'll put that link up, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing more from you in the in the weeks and months ahead, John. Stay safe over there. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. It was a, it was a pleasure. Tune in next time for COVID calls.